Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 15, There's Something About Karen. Here we are again, Chris. Back in the news cycle. Back on the podcast. Yeah, and I tell you what, I really don't want our precious history against the grain to start sounding like a Twitter feed, you know, just mimicking the outrage of the day. But God, if I didn't find myself in Twitter this morning, Josh... And getting sucked into the outrage of the day. It's it's so bad. I, I used to be like just an incessant Twitter checker. I just, you know, 20 minutes at a time just refreshing the feed. <laughs> and I realized I always felt horrible about myself by the, by the end of those 20, 30, two hours, whatever, whatever it was. Because you're right, you're just hit with outrage after outrage after outrage. And, and certainly a lot of those outrages are in fact outrageous and should, you know, provide you a lot of anger. But others you're like... There's like six people who care care about this, but we're, they're pretending like it's this you know national issue. They're talking about some obscure you know conservative saying something stupid, and it's become you know a four day event of talking about how mm-hmm. stupid it is. And it's just you you can it's okay to disconnect from that kind of thing. I think so. Yeah, when you go on though, it's it's it can be a enlightening experience, and in, in not in a good way usually though. Well, you know how you and I, because it, it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. You and I would play the game, we'd do a headline, and the other person had to guess, was it from the New York Times or The Onion? Yeah. And that, you know, so there's this thing about Trump and how he was supposedly told that uh, back in February, I'd given an intelligence briefing actually about how the Russians were paying uh, Afghanis to kill American military personnel, like offering bounties. And so he was told about this, and now, now it's come to light. And so the Trump people are saying, well, you know, he never was told this, or he didn't remember this, or, you know, some other equivocation. And instead, what Trump's posting, uh, you know, in, in response is something about a couple of people who threw paint on a George Washington statue in Manhattan. And how he refers to them as anarchists uh, and how when they're caught, they'll be prosecuted and face 10 years in prison for violating something called the Monuments and Statues Act. (laughs) That's in the Constitution, I believe, right? Isn't that the Bill of Rights, actually? So I want to ask you, Onion or New York Times? (laughs) No, that's absolutely New York Times. I mean, there's really at this point, there's no there's no difference between the two. Uh, they're talking, you know, the absurdity of regular life has just outstripped the ability of the onion to even sat- satirize this stuff at this point. They've been surpassed. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they've met their match in absurdity. Yeah, I, I, we're going to talk about some some more stuff that's been showing up in the news. I just want to call out real quick because we've been talking about, you know, the media and ideas of balance. And, and there is this uh, piece, I think it came out yesterday, pretty late yesterday, I believe. So Sunday, rather. I know you guys don't know what time when we're recording, but uh, or Monday, rather. But uh, so there's this long piece on CNN by Carl Bernstein, the you know one of the big Watergate reporters, the good one, not Woodward, but the good one, Bernstein. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
so it's all about Trump's phone calls of world leaders and how it's just a disgrace and embarrassment and he has no idea what he's talking about and doesn't bother looking at briefing materials and he bullies, tries to bully at least uh, women leaders and then he kowtows to the to the uh, the, the dictators. And uh, so buried in this story, like it's paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of examples of this incompetence, but buried in there, there's this line here, quote, the sources did cite some instances in which they said Trump acted responsibly and in the national interest. So there's, you know, one sentence in this whole thing about Trump acting responsibly. And I'm just trying to imagine poor Carl Bernstein putting this all together and then some editor saying, no, you got to throw this line in here. We need some balance here. So we get this one line. And uh, in, in some ways, it's it's supposed to be giving balance, but it just makes everything else seem that much worse that there's even a need to call out the fact that our president sometimes acts responsibly and in the national interest. And that's worth saying as, you know, a rejoinder to those who say that he's completely incompetent. So let's just, we don't need to have these mm -hmm. sentences thrown in there for, for balance. Yeah, it's a farce, farce of objectivity, you know, which somehow in this case eclipses just telling the straightforward truth, right? I mean, because right. e even if, if it's true that somehow Trump once had a responsible phone call with somebody. <laughs> I think the greater truth is he's a disaster. Yeah, you know what it reminds me of? I, and bear with me, I think it's a not, not too labored metaphor, but you know, when I was a kid growing up, we had a crabapple tree in our yard and the fruit would fall off and cover the ground. But we were told, you know, by the parents never ever to eat one of those crab apples. You know, that would, that would have a poison effect on us. This sounds like a biblical parable. Is this what you're doing? <laughs> well, you, you could decide because in the end, much like the Bible, it ended in a lot of violence. No, we, <laughs> we would pick up those crab apples and get into, you know, hellacious uh, uh, wars. We'd chuck the crab apples at each other. But, it, you know, it occurred to me that maybe the whole thing was a fit metaphor, you know, um, for for much of our 24-hour corporate media news cycle where just so much rotten inedible fruit you know falls to the ground and and ends up getting thrown around with a kind of you know, without purpose or something so fair, fair warning friends we're going to pull one more story your intrepid hosts of history against are going to pull one more story from the crab apple crap of my front yard known <laughs> as the media uh, one that I imagine most of you have seen or, or seen pictures of anyway, and it's our uh, our couple in St. Louis, Missouri, who emerged from their marble mansion, barefoot nonetheless, holding what appeared to be actual weapons, pointing them at uh, peaceful protesters who were marching by their house on the way to find the mayor's house. And so, yes, yeah, standing there in all their glory were these two you know, embodiments of what, NRA freedom, Josh? I mean, privilege, certainly, right? But, mm -hmm. but uh, I mean, it, in, in some ways, that picture of those two people awkwardly holding guns that they had probably never held before, that should be our new national flag at this point, right? I think it's a better representation <laughs> of our, our country than Stars and Stripes. Well, and Mississippi, Mississippi's getting rid of their state flag. They could adopt this It's one. It's perfect, right? It's a much better encapsulation of what we have, are and what we've become than than anything else. Certainly the Confederate flag, but but maybe even the, the old Stars and Stripes need to be replaced by McMansion living Missourians uh, <laughs> with their recently purchased firearms pointed at in unarmed crowds with fingers on trigger, by the way. 
Yeah, and I can only describe the look on her face, you know, as one of of inebriation. I I think they had had a few gimlets first uh, before, you know, their cocktail courage had them arming up and going out to confront the peaceful protesters. I mean, they were barefoot as if they hadn't had time to actually... (laughs) you know, slip on a pair of wingtips and, you know, uh, in his case. But she had a pair of black capris and a striped top and salon-colored hair. So, yeah, they were nothing if not the embodiment of that kind of middle-class bourgeois, you know, upwardly pretentious <laughs> gun owners. <laughs> Just, yeah. Uh, you know, this, this also points out one of the, the, the joys of Twitter is that somebody... Somebody realized that if you if you zoomed on the, the on her photo, she had mustard stains all over her shirt. So oh, no. that further highlights just you know they're sitting there in their you know what forty thousand square foot McMansion painted to look like it's marble with giant Grecian columns and uh, <laughs> you know fake work of the masters on their walls eating hot dogs. Yeah, and I, I tell you that last detail that does it for me. That cinches it. I'm putting her up for white racist lady magazine girl of the year and and it'll be the suburban edition but nevertheless the white racist lady magazine girl of the year what do you think it's a good it's a great honor yeah i uh, can't wait to hear the speech well it gets us into our 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 main concern uh, today uh because it points out i think we both agree how white women have have often been in effect bulwarks for white supremacy and racism in our country. And this has been going on now for a long time. You couldn't help notice the juxtaposition between uh, these white folk, middle class, upward middle class, Missouri folk, and the, and, the, and the folks who were passing in front of them as they pointed their guns uh, were people of color, black and brown and, and people of color. And so that stark contrast to see, and I did a, a still shot, I think I even sent it to you, Josh, that showed in the foreground those peaceful protesters, pe- people of color, in other words, and in the background, the kind of uh, inebriated, you know, gun-waving look of, of this white woman. And look, in fairness, typically, white women don't get the credit they deserve for propping up American racism. I mean, to paraphrase James Brown, racism is a man's world, typically. And the male racists get elected to the Senate. You know, they blow up federal buildings and have their statues placed in a public square. So, you know, it's hard to compete with that, right, if you're a woman. Yeah, that's a really important point. And I think we might have mentioned this a few weeks ago, but with these statues coming down, I mean, they're all men, right? I don't think there's been a single Mm -hmm. statue of a woman pulled down because they're so I mean I, I'm trying to even think of statues of women prominently placed in in cities I've, I've been to and I know there are some but they're just they're not there and it, it, it points to the fact that white men obviously play the central role in race we live in a patriarchal racialized power structure uh, and that places men at the top but but women have played this complementary role as well in, in in the system and they you know as I'm going to talk about later they're able to become involved in power in, in places and spaces where, where the men generally don't get involved. And so it's um, it's almost unnecessary, as you said, a bulwark for this racial system is that it, it doesn't work if it's only white men uh, in the power structure, in the direct power structure who are, who are building it. It requires collaborators, we'll just say. Yeah, that's really well said because it, it reminds us that to find the woman's presence in this system, you have to look 
you know, to stage right or, or you know, maybe that's a bad pun, huh? I don't know. Um, <laughs> you have to look in those sort of uh, less conspicuous uh, spaces. I'm thinking about, for example, we've all seen the famous uh, photos of the Little Rock Nine, you know, in, yeah. in, in Arkansas right back in 57. And, and, the, and you have the black students who are, you know, being led into Central High by the you know, by the military escort and how they're having to walk through a gauntlet of screaming, epithet, shouting white people, including uh, prominently in some of those famous pictures, young white female, you know, female students. You know, we see photos from lynchings even where you see people, you know, posing for the camera while a tortured, you know, corpse hung from a nearby tree, you know, in the background, they in the front ground, often white women looking like they're on date night, you know, looking to the camera. And lest we forget, after all, it was called the uh, the daughters of the Confederacy that was the main lobbying arm to get those uh, Confederate statues put up. But I don't know. For, I mean, the problem with that for me is these all all these examples point to the South. You know, so you sort of miss the point that white women much more generally have been the bulwarks of racism and white supremacy all over the land of the free. You know, we know that white women voters in 2016, uh, for example, voted for Trump at a much higher rate than did black and brown women and women of color. According to the Pew Research Center, uh, the overall percentage of women to vote, 47 percent compared to 45% for Clinton, that is of white women voters, 47% for Trump, 45% for Clinton. That's still a plurality, you know, and it certainly makes white women much more Trump positive, you might say, than the overall electorate, which went 48 to 46 for Clinton. But I was thinking about this, you know, and if you look at, uh, for example, from your favorite city, Josh, of Boston, back in the <laughs> 70s, the anti-busing protesters there, uh, were who? There were mostly, uh, many times, conspicuously white women, right, mm -hmm. who were out in front of that that protest against integration. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, recently we've been treated to what's being called the the Karen phenomenon, correct? Yeah, I'm gonna spend I'm gonna spend some time on this in a little, in a little bit, but yeah, it's uh, you know, this is definitely one of these social media phenomenon in in that it, it kind of brings together the fact that we have you know, this instant ability to, to see what's happening now. Everybody's got camera phones, so we get all these videos of it. But it's become um, this, this you know, really popular event for people to, to laugh at and cringe to is, is seeing um, particularly these white women engaging in these outrageous behaviors, particularly where it involves people of color. That is certainly true. And, and I think it's another example. I mean, we've given something a name, but really... This has been a long-standing pattern of, of behavior um, with respect to race, not just on the part of the sort of, you know, red-faced screamers in Little Rock, Arkansas, or the, you know, the, the strangely bemused looks of people at a lynching, but in a much more, what we call kind of liberal mainstream of white American womanhood. Um, we all know about Amy Cooper, right? The woman, the uh, educated, professional, um, self-styled liberal Democrat in Central Park, right? Who uh, a couple months ago was drawn into the maelstrom of this uh, for uh, on video threatening to call the police 
because a black man objected to her uh, having her dog off leash, even though the, the rules in, in Central Park require in that area the dogs to be on leash. And so her threat, and I, and I think some people were, were at a loss as to, well, what, you know, what's the big deal? But, you know, when we think about those lynchings, right, you and I were talking about this, you know, for decades, this, this domestic terror perpetuated racial violence against black men and women in this country was almost always predicated on what excuse? On protecting the, the purity and innocence of, of white women. You bet. You know, and the accusation that somehow a white woman's safety had been menaced, you know, by what even we consider innocuous. You know, Emmett Till famously was said to have flirted with a woman at a drugstore counter, you know, uh, although she later acknowledged that that was even incorrect. But that a 15-year-old kid, you know, could be uh, brazenly um, beaten and then murdered on the pretext of that. And so, look, a key question, I think, in this moment of ours, Josh, is is where will white women stand? You know, even progressive liberal white women stand on the uh, issues of the day, you know, of police racial brutality or the supporting of defunding of the police, you know, in favor of funding what's being called harm reduction and social work and mental health education or, you know, uh, efforts undertaken to, to end poverty. Uh, because the tendency for white women, even those who consider themselves to be liberal and therefore not racist, have manifested what, uh, you know, the sociologist Robin D'Angelo has called uh, White Fragility. And I want to just read a, a quick section from that book, White Fragility, where the author uh, describes how socialized into a deeply internalized sense of superiority that we either are unaware of or can never quite admit to, we become highly fragile in conversations about race. We consider a challenge to our racial worldviews as a challenge to our very identities as good and moral people. Thus, we perceive any attempt to connect to the system of racism as an unsettling and unfair moral offense. The smallest amount of racial stress is intolerable. The mere suggestion that being white uh, has meaning often triggers a range of defensive responses. And so, yeah, that, that idea of white fragility, you know, has really been brought now into the light um, from the margins or from the, the less conspicuous uh, spaces and really confronts women who consider themselves to be allies or, you know, uh, progressives on behalf of racial justice. You know, I follow a, a black woman, uh, Monique Melton, on Instagram. As we've pointed out before, Instagram and social media have become some of the main channels for these voices. And she's an anti-racism educator, speaker, author. And I'm happy to report she has no hesitation in keeping white women honest about their white fragility and what needs to happen in this pivotal moment and suffers no foolish conceits or, or white fragility because it really amounts to a kind of gaslighting of black people who are made to feel that somehow they are attacking white women uh, or that white women somehow feel attacked by black people's insistence on anti-racism, you know, and, and conflating black women's resistance to racism with an attack against white women. 
it sometimes gets so absurd, it's called reverse discrimination, right? One of my least favorite terms, yeah. Right. And so, yeah, I like what she and many others have to say about this. Now, so, you know, there's a more nuanced definition definition of race here that we have to deal with, uh, where uh, often white women have been supportive of this. Uh, it can be a passive aggressive stance, just not listening or not recognizing how a system that itself is designed inherently racist to to uh, provide benefits uh, for those and, and not equally, not equitably, you know, uh, but provide benefits for for white women who who, uh, you know, take these sort of privileged stances. And so, yeah, in today's episode, we're taking a deeper look at that uh, in our own time and, and in history and the phenomenon of the Karen and now, as we move to the next segment, we have uh, invited a guest and uh, a local educator who finds herself immersed in the cause of anti-racism and the, and the hopeful demise of the Karen. So let's not waste any more. Let's get to our interview with Jenny Padgett. are most happy to have as a special guest on History Against the Grain today, Jenny Paget. Now, full disclosure, for the last 20 years, we have been working together on a special project that we call our marriage. Yes. <laughs> but more than spousely duty brings us together on today's episode. So let me tell you a bit more about our special guest. Jenny is a grad of Weber State University, where she earned a degree in both history and English. And since 2002, she has been an award-winning full-time educator, teaching a full range of high school English classes from freshman to senior advanced placement. She's completed graduate work, literacy, and language, and she currently teaches at Cupertino High School here in the Bay Area. Now, like many educators in this time of pandemic and anti-racist revolution, she finds her job focus as a teacher to be changing almost daily. And as we'll see, she is among the growing ranks of women educators to take up the call for an activist stance in decolonizing the three C's of education. The three C's, of course, being curriculum, classroom, and campus. We are happy to have on our podcast my partner in quarantine, Jenny Paget. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be on this side of the mic with you this time. Well, you know, you've served in many uh, guises as production assistant, uh, script writer, <laughs> <laughs> microphone adjuster, but now we have you on where we wanted you in the first place, which is uh, as an expert witness in American education. Look, we've, we've seen in recent days and weeks how white women yes. uh, in particular have occupied a range of positions for and against in this movement of racial justice. Uh, what's your perspective? What have you seen and, and where do you stand? Well, I have to start with a watershed moment for me, and I think it was for a lot of a lot of women uh, I know, and that was with Amy Cooper's weaponization of 911 uh, to threaten the life of Christian Cooper, a black man uh, who politely was asking her to comply with the law of Central Park and have her dog on a leash. 
it uh, stunned me in her callous ability to go into performance mode, affecting um, that she was being threatened um, when it was clear to us all watching the video that she was not. And it really drove home for me the understanding of the role that white women continue to play in ongoing police brutality of black people and people of color in this country. Um, on top of that, there's been the entitled fit throwing uh, of white women in various grocery stores and Trader Joe's uh, who feel their freedoms are being uh, infringed upon for being asked to wear a mask to protect one another from COVID-19. And just the uh, initial and ongoing support of white women's support of our racist president and racist governmental policies that uh, the reaction uh, has been uh, disappointing and frustrating, to say the least, and and obviously not with me. I didn't coin uh, the term Karen, and um, and I think that that white women uh, need to take a look at the role that we play. As much as I am working right now daily on unlearning racist thoughts, behaviors, things that were ingrained in me. I've also thought about working every day to be anti-Karen. And I have sort of a specific thing that means to me. Um, and this whole situation has helped me think it through. Uh, I think that white women, and I'm really talking about a sort of middle-aged, middle-class uh, woman, um, we really need to be much less concerned with obsessing over our own wellness and our own levels of discomfort. Uh, there is no shortage uh, in the industry of self-help that caters precisely to, uh, to groups of women who have uh, expendable income to spend on books and seminars and programs uh, designed to assure us that we have every right to our privilege. And I think this has become a real problem for white women because we've turned discomfort into kind of a commensurate uh, false uh, connection to the trauma and weathering that black women and women of color uh, suffer from in this country all day, every day. And I really think that the privileges, the privilege of this examining and focusing exclusively on our uh, self-care and on uh, creating and drawing boundaries. I, I don't know of a group that's more bounded and protected than white women, and yet uh, white women everywhere I turn are, are being, you know, uh, you know, urged to learn to create boundaries um, as if at any moment, you know, our, our safety is at stake. And, and I think it's, it's, what it's done is it's created almost a presumed kinship with real trauma experienced by women of color and, and trauma, real trauma experienced by white women. And this discomfort, as I call it, has really enabled us to ignore what's going on around us. And something like Amy Cooper really drove that home to me. I just want to add this as a caveat. I don't want to get off track. I'm not talking about women of all stripes who suffer 
uh, for mental health issues. Those are real, those are serious, um, and, and those should be taken very seriously and treated professionally with uh, however the woman feels with her physician, therapist, psychiatrist, etc. But I'm really talking about a, a broader, you know, less serious condition that that frankly, some women have been writing about, you know, for going on centuries now. And, and I think we are able too easily to distract ourselves from the real problems going on in our society. Yeah, I can't help but think, you know, what you're talking about here is, is a kind of personal revolution as much as a societal for sure. revolution, a, a dramatic expanding of consciousness uh, as, a, as a white woman, uh, you know, a middle-class white woman, educated woman. Now, look, I because I've known you uh, these many years, uh, I know you've long been committed to various types of social justice. I mean, in, in your teaching, you were an early and vital supporter of students uh, on the on the battlefront of of sexual orientation, yes. for example, for for gay, lesbian, transgender uh, students. Even when in, teaching in a conservative uh, community, that that was seen as you know, really antithetical. So, so you've been a committed, I guess what we'd call liberal, but something has happened here in the last couple of years, wouldn't you say? I mean, it, I would it, definitely say. Yeah, I mean, I know, well, for example, in 2017, you attended the Women's March uh, in, in Washington, D.C. So talk about that. How did that experience maybe help shape your consciousness uh, in, in new ways? Do you see a connection between that experience and what you're what you're doing now, I absolutely do see a connection. Uh, attending the the march on Washington, the one in D.C., uh, I was aware as it was uh, being touted and word was going out about it that this was a place I needed to be. That history was happening, and to gather with my daughter and some dear friends, a colleague, uh, to join together then with uh, what had to be a million sisters uh, from other mothers as we joined in with such uh, an array of diversity and and the numbers. I knew that what we were doing was important. I knew that when we all left Washington the next day, Donald Trump was still going to be in the White House. Uh, I knew that uh, things were not going to change overnight. In fact, the next day, the president was discounting the numbers and discounting the events, but it mattered. And from that, you know, nationally and locally, we've seen women rise in politics. Uh, more women are running for elections and more women are winning. But just personally, uh, since the 2016 election, women I know have been way more plugged into their responsibility and their ability to speak up. I've seen it in classrooms. I've heard it in uh, groups and women who gather that women are ready to come together uh, in, in force and to speak up. I know women have, have spoken up since that election to their friends and family for the first time, and they're doing it consistently. And uh, we're talking to each other about the best ways to 
to talk about this, to bring it into our classrooms, to help our students pinpoint, uh, I know what you've talked about on your podcast, and and I agree with you, um, positions of moral clarity in this world, how to speak with their families, how to take their young, fired up activist hearts and challenge um, the people in their lives. And and in nearly 20 years of, of public uh, school teaching, I've never seen this much continued and growing activism and commitment. And for me, I really, that, that genesis started at that Women's March. Yeah, I think, you know, looking back years from now, we'll see this period, you know, just, just recent years as representing some some sort of watershed. I mean, I, I really I, I try not to predict the future. Uh, it's a, it's a bad a bad bet most of the time. But uh, I think it's it seems clear that taken together these sorts of of moments, you know, in 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 total will be seen as a kind of watershed. And you talked about all the voices literally that day at the women's march. I remember watching it online. Uh, speakers, you know, one after the other, representing all kinds of experiences from yes. black and brown women to white women, Asian American women, Native American women, Latina women. Um, and a shout out to the trans woman who shared her story with me quickly. And we stood hand in hand, strangers who were united. Um, it happened uh, across the whole day, all day with, you know, the, the hundreds of thousands of us. Yes. Yeah, it was it was remarkable to watch even even from a distance. <laughs> so I can't imagine what it must have been like uh, to be on on the ground and, and in the middle of that just great humanity, you know, dedicated to uh, all things uh, women. You know, as a historian and, and, and one who has taught women's history, you know, I know that there have been movements in the past, um, from the abolitionist movement, for example, to the various yes. uh, waves of, of or phases of feminism. Uh, I think suffrage. I've been in at least two waves of feminism <laughs> in my lifetime. I'm that old. <laughs> As I'm sure you remind your students, um, you know, to uh, uh, civil rights, uh, even, you know, more recently, Me Too. And this, sure. this really just scratches the surface. But one, one thing that's been true, perhaps lamentably true in, in a country that was built on these foundations, you know, of white supremacy is that often in those sort of consortia of women's moments, white women have frequently presumed to have perhaps, you know, a, a leading voice yes. in, in public utterances or in the writing of tracts and books. And, and, and that's created a certain amount of tension often with women of other ethnicities, uh, black and brown women, et cetera, who feel sometimes that they're, they're nearly colonized within those larger women's movements. And isn't it wonderful to see that start to change? That to me right now is the best part, the most exciting part. We know Angela Davis, we know her name, and almost the fact that that those of us uh, in you know white woman America can name Angela Davis and then find ourselves sort of stammering. I'm fortunate that I can reach for black authors, Toni Morrison, Maya Angelou, etc. But really, you know, we sort of start our list runs dry, and that's that's shameful. And I also think that's coming to an end. Yeah. Well, in fact, and I and I know you can speak to this. 
one of the reasons it's coming to an end is because living now in the digital age yes. with the you know, nearly universal social media presence, it's possible not just for the, the we'll call them, you know, sort of established black women voices, um, you know, in the canon, uh, the Toni Morrison's or in, on the activist side and Angela Davis, but a whole multitude now of black women's voices who, because of the access to the forum that social media provides, have also been able to receive a full hearing. And, and that's what I want you to talk about. I, I know you've undertaken recently a, a seven day course online. I think you found it on Instagram at first and it played out on Facebook. But talk about how you've heard black sure. women's voices. You know, um my Instagram feed is completely different now. Early morning, June 2nd, I woke up to a series of black squares. Everyone's feed had been blacked out and immediately uh, I, I looked it up, what is happening, what's going on, and added my own black square. By later that afternoon, I'd already seen calls to take them down. This was problematic and I realized then social media, particularly for me, Instagram, would never be the same, to get, same again. And it was where we could go to get information. I would say in the last just two weeks, um, I follow 20 new black women voices on Instagram. I'm adding them all the time. Uh, I did. I came across um, at United Street Tours, uh, Chiquita Charnice, uh, who is someone I follow, I would even say religiously now on Instagram, uh, had a course where we could pay for seven days. And then the facilitators created a, a closed Facebook group where women from all over the world, and I'm not kidding, there were women from uh, Great Britain, from the Netherlands, um, and and really we were connecting on doing this work. Uh, we were charged with examining our own racist ingrained habits, talking about ways to dismantle those. We were challenged uh, one day, our exclusive task was to call each other out on the ways that we were uh, that we were not rising up to the challenge, um, that we were calling each other out on on the, the things that we weren't getting right. And it was absolutely amazing work. And and to say I, I did a seven day thing, I want everyone to know I'm 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 waiting for payday. There's so many ways to buy curriculum and programs from black women who have been working for years on this and they are they are difficult, they put us right in the middle of discomfort, and they are absolutely essential. And I believe so strongly uh, our job as white women is to sit back, listen, learn, support financially where we can, uh, show up in the ways that aren't performative, but that legitimately help. Uh, my favorite question that arose out of uh, the anti-racist everyday challenge is, what have you done today to make life better for a black person? Just period. Like, you know, uh, the thing I posted on my Instagram story doesn't really cut it. And to have to think harder and dig deeper um, about making these wrongs right in my lifetime, I think it's I think it's the greatest opportunity white women have been given if we you know, if we accept it. Yeah. And as you pointed out back, you know, at the beginning of our segment, 
what you call the Karen phenomenon. What we know is the Karen phenomenon is, is sort of predicated in this idea that white women shouldn't be made to feel uncomfortable. Yes. And there's, as you pointed out, a whole industry of self-help books and better living guides, et cetera, that seem to message, mostly many of them written by white women, yes. for white women, to, to message this idea of, you know, you don't have to be uncomfortable. Now, you already pointed out, of course, that whether it be, you know, mental health or, you know, domestic violence, of something course. of that nature, of, of course, nobody is going to suggest that there shouldn't be a strong assertion against that. But you're talking now in more purely personal ways and in you yourself against what sometimes is called sometimes is called white fragility, right? Yes. That, that somehow to be challenged, you see yourself as an educated liberal uh, <laughs> teacher who's at Foursquare in favor of civil rights and whatnot. But the challenge is to then understand your own conditioning, your own place in a system predicated that systemic predication of white supremacy and to be challenged in that way. Yes. And I know you've accepted that. Uh, and I know you're accepting it even therefore in your role now as a teacher. So maybe, you know, maybe take us out today by talking about the ways in challenging yourself, you now find that translating into how you're going to teach in the, and, and be a colleague uh, on your campus. Yes, thank you. Um, this is maybe the thing I'm most excited about uh, in my life right now. I've told you, I, I haven't had this kind of uh, creative academic energy going through me uh, for a for a long time, and and I love what I do, and I I love creating curriculum and and creating new ways to connect with my students. But the concept and the idea of decolonizing my classroom and my curriculum has absolutely taken over my summer. There is no summer break uh, in 2020. It's, uh, it's a joyful, uh, laborious, but also exciting work. And so I need to do a gratitude shout out. Um, I belong uh, to a campus and particularly an English department on that campus where everyone is fully engaged in the work. I attended a summer work session, not certain if I was going to have to aggressively advocate only to find that our basic team concept was let's burn it all down and rebuild it. And the number of times I kept telling my colleagues, I've got chills, I've got chills, um, is, is real. It's it's so exciting. So what does that mean? I'm an English teacher. Um, it means that we bring in black voices, for sure, swapping out pieces of the canon um, that aren't resonant right now at this time and, and don't do the fullness of the work that we need to be doing. So definitely bringing in black voices, black authors, or uh, authors of color um, from different perspectives where LGBTQ plus communities are concerned, a full range that more widely reflects the world that our students live in. But the pieces that we do have, and I'm specifically talking about uh, an honors American literature course that I teach, I'm really excited to use other resources. Uh, for example, I'm using Ibram X. Kendi stamp from the beginning to revise our whole colonial packet so that we are reframing for these students the beginnings of whiteness in the colonies. That's not a way I've approached teaching colonial literature in America in the past five years. 
And I am so fired up and excited to be rethinking even the things I've taught for years with this with this new and frankly, who are we kidding? This more accurate and honest lens. And there are resources by the day multiplying on the internet. There are uh, teachers sharing, reading together in book clubs, really pushing each other to do this really important work of bringing the true world into the lives of our students and, and learning about their experiences within it from them centering their experiences, um, how they relate to it, uh, how it impacts their lives and what contributions that they are already making and want to continue to make to it. It's the best work I can imagine doing right now. Well, you know, I've watched you with, you know, genuine respect and inspiration undertake this sort of dual, <laughs> dual, um, journey that you're on one to to decarinize but also <laughs> myself to yourself but also to decolonize you know your your uh, curriculum in your classroom and and we had jordan mcgowan on our last yes. episode yeah, yeah that very was very vital voice in sacramento yes. you know working on behalf of racial justice and i think as as your voices connect even even though modestly here on our own podcast but in in more uh, you know, even more significant ways that the changes that you're you're working on are going to be, uh, be themselves become systemic changes, and that's you know that's what undergirds every revolution. You know, not cosmetic or superficial uh, reforms, but thoroughgoing um, you know change. Yes. And and so I want to uh, I want to applaud you for that. Thank you. You know, I want to thank you for coming on. I, I, I think as with our other guests, you know, we want to check back with you, huh? Maybe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's see how it how it goes. Will you give us a report for from sure. the front lines? I absolutely will, wherever they may be once we get started. Thank you, Jenny. Listen, uh, what do you say we go get dinner? I'm hungry. All right, so what I've learned from Jenny's work uh, in anti-racism is that it's a, it's a dual process uh, for women like her. Um, that is to say, white women, professional, educated uh, women committed to the, this cause because it's not only you know, acting to dismantle racist systems like the police and, and say schools, but it's also very much a personal project of you know, recognizing how being a white woman in this country automatically confers certain privileges uh, that then get tied up with the the larger, you know, history of these systems. Um, so a kind of, of dual project. And I know that you want to draw us out into that larger uh, scope of, uh, of, of how these systems work and, and how women have often been supportive of them. Yeah, of course, we're, we're historians. And so we always want to take, you know, contemporary phenomena, the Karen phenomena, as we're calling it, and try to historicize and, and make sense of them in, in a historical context. Because these things, as we, we know, and as hopefully listeners should should have an understanding of 15 episodes in, you know, everything has an historical origin that, you know, the, the phrase that's been going through my head just over and over again, and maybe this is something we'll get more into in, a, in another episode is that we made this right that this this world as it exists exists because of 
things we did as, as humans, as societies that created these structures and created these systems that we now live with. So, you know, that's just as much the case with this quote unquote Karen phenomenon as, as anything else that we've looked at and talked about on this show. Um, and so I just want to quickly define what I see as this Karen phenomenon. And what, what I see it is it involves white women essentially policing the activities of people of color in public spaces, um, often in ways that, you know, as I, I mentioned a bit ago, you can laugh at, you can, you can make fun of, uh, you know, it has become this thing where people share these videos and make fun of them. But to do that, you really have to ignore just how ugly the sent- sentiments and assumptions behind those outbursts really are, right? And you mentioned uh, Amy Cooper. I didn't recognize the name. I know her only as New York Karen, but the, the woman who uh, reacted so strongly to uh, somebody asking her to put her dog on a leash, a black man asking her to put her dog on a leash. Mm-hmm. Um, we had San Francisco Karen uh, a couple of weeks ago who threatened to call the police on a Filipino man for stenciling Black Lives Matter on his own property. And, and you know, what we saw in that, in that clip is that she, you know, talked about gaslighting. This was his home, and she, she was telling him that, no, it was not his home. She knew the people lived there, and it was not him. And so imagine being told in front of your own house that it's not your house, uh, you know, that's the, the, the epitome of, of, you know, this, this is these set of assumptions and, um, and privileges that, that go into this Karen phenomenon. And then, you know, we got we to gotta shout out our local example. Sacramento Karen was a, a big one a few days ago. Maybe that was last week. And she was, uh, we didn't really get much context for this one, but she was caught on video hurling racist remarks at a black woman and she promptly got punched in the face for it. So that was, that one had a happy ending actually. Um, but you know, it's, it's just been going on and on and on. You know, the first one I really remember actually is a pre Karen version of this. And she was, she's called barbecue Betty in Oakland. And she's the one who called the police on a group of, of people who were having a barbecue in a, in a public park. Uh, and so people of color having a barbecue in her mind was just a bridge too far for her. And this was necessitated calling the authorities to uh, put an end to this scurrilous behavior. So, um, you know, obviously there's... Well, I know. think for her being black in a park was bad enough, but presuming to eat there... Yeah. Yeah, just couldn't tolerate that. Uh, yeah. Again, just a, a bridge too far. That was yeah, a little too much. Um, so obviously there, there's so many examples of this behavior. What I want to do, though, is go back deeper into history and, and try to find maybe not the origins, but but find examples that kind of show how this process of, you know, Karenhood, can we call it that? I just made up that term, but mm-hmm. Karenosity, mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, how it looked in, in the more distant past um, as opposed to today. And so I, what I want to do is examine what I'm calling the colonial Karens, Karens in the empire, uh, because I think it really does highlight the specific role that that white women were supposed to play in these societies, um, you know, whether English or French or Dutch or even American empires of the 19th and 20th century. And what I, what I want to say first is that I think the role of white women in European empires is a very particular one, as, as I'll get into, but is also one that was long, long subject to misinterpretation, um, as obviously many things uh, involving women are. It's, it's a couch in a lot of misogyny as well. And so I do want to want to recognize that. But the long running kind of trope in the history and literature of these empires was the suggestion that it became more common uh, as it became more common for women to accompany their husbands to the colonies. The empires became more racialized in character. And so kind of the idea is not that racism didn't exist before women began arriving in larger numbers, 
but that the racial boundaries became far less permeable, we'll say, um, once women arrived. And, and the assumption then was that women brought this more deep-seated racism with them. They made the empires more racist than they had been before. And we see this a lot actually in the literature of empire, not just in kind of historical studies where it does certainly show up, uh, but in the literature of empire as well. And I want to give two examples of this because uh, they do demonstrate the, the, the stickiness of this idea of, of the role of women in empires. Uh, the first one comes from George Orwell's Burmese Days, where the character of Elizabeth Lacherstein is a real, we'll call her proto-Karen. Uh, she arrives in the story in this Burmese hill station of Kiyoktata. We can call her Kiyoktata Karen, actually. That works pretty well. And so Kiyoktata Karen, Elizabeth Lacherstein, um, meets up with the main character, a guy named Flory, who, you know, maybe I think the second day they, they know each other, he takes her to a native marketplace in, in this town of Kiyoktata uh, to see a play that the locals are putting on. And his assumption is that she's going to be interested in this. He says, I think, you know, anybody with eyes couldn't help but be uh, entranced by the dancing in these in these um, in this play in this performance. But when they arrive, she focuses on something entirely different. She says, "Do they always have their plays in the middle of the road?" And Floyd responds, "As a rule, they put up a rough stage and take it down in the morning. The show lasts all night." And then she says, "But are they allowed to blocking up the whole roadway?" And it's the ultimate Karen act, right? The assumption that this public space, you know, again, she is the visitor to this village. She is the foreigner in this village, but that she uh, can call out their behavior in their own spaces and, and, and you know, say what, this, uh, what the appropriate kinds of actions are within these public spaces. Eventually, Flory and Elizabeth do sit down. They watch for a little bit before Elizabeth angrily storms out after realizing that Flory had put her into this wholly inappropriate situation. And she says in internal monologue, at least, that, quote, the whole expedition, the very notion of wanting to rub shoulders with all those smelly natives had impressed her badly. She was perfectly certain that that was not how white men ought to behave. And so we see there is, you know, her role is not just calling out these, these moments when the, the natives are using public space inappropriately, uh, but she also has this idea of what appropriate behavior is for those of her race. Right, that her role in, the, in this empire, she understands, at least implicitly, is to understand what people should do and should not do and defend and act appropriately according to those, uh, those rules as well. And so Elizabeth Lacherstein, our first colonial Karen. And, and again, you know, Burmese Days, if you haven't read it, really excellent novel. There's some elements that I think are a little more problematic now than, than when it was published in 1934, certainly. Uh, but definitely an anti-imperialist novel, one that does show the dark side of, of empire, particularly for white people, which Orwell seemed to uh, be better at than, than actually um, getting across the plight of, of the, the colonized people themselves. But another example comes from uh, E.M. Forrest's A Passage to India, uh, another really great novel from about a decade before uh, Burmese Days, so about 1924, I think it was published. And like Burmese Days, this is also very insightful about some of, uh, of this imperial experience. It is critical of, of empire, the British Empire in India, in this case specifically. But it also traffics in some of these common tropes about white women. And so early in the book, for instance, Dr. Aziz, who's one of our main, main characters, he is a, a Muslim doctor within this, uh, the, the town that the, the, the book takes place. He and two friends are discussing whether it's possible to be friends with an English person. And they go back and forth on this, on this topic about whether it's possible. And then Aziz finally declares that, quote, they all become exactly the same, not worse, 
not better. I give any Englishman two years, be he Turton or Burton. It is only a difference of a letter. And I give any Englishwoman six months. All are exactly alike. And so in the movie version, by the way, of this conversation takes even further. And uh, in that version, Aziz says, uh, the women, he says just explicitly, the women are worse. But the idea presented there, and this is presented certainly throughout Burmese days, is that while the men are bad, the women are worse, particularly when it comes to to kind of this this explicit racism that's part of the empire. Um, and so this trope, you know, I'm, I'm talking about it in this kind of literature, but it was it was part of the academic discussion as well. And, and people talked about empire in the terms of women arrive, racism gets worse. And again, these are both books that are generally anti-imperialist and pretty racially progressive, at least for their time, you know, 1920s, 1930s. What it turns out that the, these tropes about white women in empire got wrong, according to historian Ann Laura Stoller, is that white women in the colonies didn't cause the heightened racism. Their increased presence was the effect of it, right? That essentially, as racism got worse, you know, as racism got more deep-seated in the minds and in the, the bodies and in the, the structures of European power, it came to be seen as necessary to bring white women to the colonies. And, you know, this seems like such an obvious thing now. And Laura Stoller uh, was writing in the mid-90s about it, and then she continues continues to publish today, certainly. And, and it's been a common theme of her books is kind of outlaying the way that power functions in these empires, in particular the role of gender in these functionings of power. And it seems kind of obvious now to say, oh, we're confusing cause and effect here. But it was truly a, a different argument when she began making it in the mid-1990s. So essentially part of this argument is that from the later 19th century, empires began to rule in a more explicitly racialized manner. And as that process played out, it came to be seen as imperative for white women to help establish and police racial boundaries that many feared had become too blurry, right? That this was, you know, as, as empires were observed by those in power and those who served the empire, they looked around, they weren't happy with what they were seeing. And particularly because race was now the most important thing by, you know, we'll say post-1850, just to put a, a number on it. Um, and it needed to be fixed. And white women were seen as the kind of cure-all for this problem. As Stoller herself put it, quote, white women were charged with maintaining racial prestige, end quote. That prestige was widely believed had been undermined by relations between white men and native women, and in particular, the children that were the result of such relationships. Um, this is, um, you know, again, a very common thing you're going to see in the empire is these critiques of these mixed race children and how they're blurring the lines between the conquering class and then the conquered class. They didn't fit in with what in the modern world uh, was desired, which was very clear lines, very clear boundaries between things. Everything should be able to be put into a specific box and understood that way. And mixed race children, uh, mixed race populations well, more, more generally, kind of confounded that system of ordering. Now, these relationships between uh, European men and native women had once been seen as, quote, a part of the strategic tactics of conquest. And it was only later where they were condemned as encroachments on and threats the privilege of an overseas colonizing settler population. And I, th I think, you know, even if you're not that schooled in this history, you can probably think of some examples of, of these, these relationships between European men and native women, famously the Pocahontas story, made famous by Disney, but Pocahontas and John Rolfe. Uh, another one, probably less famous because Disney hasn't made a movie about it, is the story of Cortez and the woman known as La Malinche, who becomes kind of his guide and his lover eventually as well. But what both those stories have in common 
is that the women involved, Pocahontas and La Malinche, um, are allotted because they essentially turn their backs on their native culture and embrace the culture of the conquerors, right? Pocahontas eventually comes back to, to Europe with John Rolfe, where she's placed in European dresses and she's kind of paraded around and seen as an example of this native princess who is now, uh, I guess, as I said, turned her back on her culture. And what makes them suitable then, what makes them useful in these stories is that uh, in the presence of this quote-unquote higher civilization, uh, they made the correct choice and abandoned their culture for that of the conquerors. So that had been the, the you know, the, the kind of common story that uh, as Europeans came into these places, whether it's in Asia or the Americas or Africa, what had w once been seen as a proper thing to do, which is marry or have whatever kinds of relations um, that were appropriate with local populations came to be seen as something that was not appropriate at all. And again, we'll, we'll date this from the later 19th century. So as white women, be women began to come to the colonies, mainly as wives of colonial officials, of colonial officers, very rarely as, as single women. And part of the, uh, the story of Burmese days, in fact, is that Elizabeth Lackerstein is a single woman in the colonies, which makes her a very desired commodity because there are very few of those. But as white women came to the colonies, mainly as wives, they took control of the households and there they could exercise this kind of racialized power within spheres that traditional legal and military power, obviously the kind of power associated with men, couldn't reach, right? And so they could fit into these spaces that the traditional power structure had a hard time accessing. And that's one of the keys to the importance of, of white women in the colonies. Uh, Stoller calls these the intimate domains of empire. These intimate domains, as, as Stoller called them, that were dominated by women became the sites in which large-scale dynamics of rule could then connect to implementation of that rule on a much smaller scale. That they could essentially operate in these areas that the, 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 the more uh, visible forms of power, legal and military, couldn't operate. And so they could then take these kind of imperial ideas and make sure they actually worked at the smallest levels of power. And just a couple examples of this. In the Netherlands Indies, uh, the, it was common for Dutch mothers to forbid their children playing with the children of servants. And the fear was that they would become too comfortable, quote, babbling and thinking in Javanese, right? So for these children of, of Dutch mothers and fathers, children want to play. Most of the kids around would have been the children of ser servants. But the fear was, well, if our children play with their children, then those boundaries are going to start falling down, right? What's going to make them Dutch if everybody they know, everybody they play with, all the language they hear is Javanese, is uh, from, from the Indies. And another example, a popular etiquette manual advised mothers to make sure that Javanese nursemaids held babies away from their bodies so they would not smell of their sweat. So essentially, they didn't want their babies returned to them smelling like the Javanese uh, nursemaids. And the belief was it wasn't just about the smell. It was what this was inculcating in these babies. It was essentially imprinting upon them habits and ideas and ways of thinking that were going to separate them from uh, you know, their racial group, essentially, that they would become through connection with their Javanese nursemaids through these Javanese children. They would become something other than Dutch. And that was the real fear. And that was the real goal of white women in the colonies to make sure that didn't happen to make sure the boundaries remained as firm as, as ever. And this isn't the only way that the presence of European women served the broader racialized power structure of the empire. The other role they really served is as vulnerable objects. This is a common trope in empires as well, this fear of 
of what's going to happen to our women. Uh, the fear of rebellion was, was very much tied to the fear of what rebels would do if they captured European women. And so that very vulnerability of European women, or at least that uh, supposed vulnerability, could then be used to justify more extreme methods of defense against what are really imagined threats. Right? So these were not you know, fears based on actual intelligence about what was being planned or what was, was being even sought after, but it was a way of justifying increased acts of, of quote-unquote defense, but were often very aggressive towards these local communities. In doing so, in kind of building up these defenses against these imagined threats, men, quote, imposed and women actively participated in protective models of womanhood and motherhood and prescriptions for domestic relations. These prescriptions ultimately create a set of cultural and behavioral constraints on the entire society, whether colonizer or colonized. And so the idea then is that whatever women were when they came to the colonies, the colonies themselves were set up in such a way to create people of a, of a particular sort. And that's true for the natives themselves. Right? What they were supposed to be was clearly laid out in you know, these racialized ideas of the Dutch or the French or the British or whoever else. But this is also certainly the case for the colonizers themselves, that what it meant to be a woman in the colonies, what it meant to be a man as well, for that matter, were very clearly laid out. And this is something that shows up in the literature as well. Both literature that's pro-empire and anti-empire is that serving the empire for white men and white women meant behaving a certain way, acting a certain way, looking a certain way, but essentially overall, uh, overall else presenting oneself to the empire in a certain way. And women, as I've been suggesting, are crucial to this because of their ability to operate in these spaces that men didn't operate. In the context of empires then, the job of white women, their entire reason for being there, was to serve in a dual role as guardians of colonial boundaries against those who try to transgress them, but also as potential victims whose presence created a culture of fear that could then be used to bolster white men's sense of manhood and virility. Right? And so what we're seeing here is that you know, this Cairn phenomenon is something that doesn't just exist you know, in isolation, just amongst the, 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 the white women, but it exists within the context of this broader power structure, that the Karen phenomenon, you know, is beget from this larger system of patriarchal racialized rule that also helps to instill in the men a certain way of thinking and behaving in relation to the quote-unquote Karens of their society. Now, once established, this whole system in the empires was relatively easy to perpetuate. It did require, as I just suggested, that new arrivals to the colonies had to learn a lot of new habits and ways of thinking. This is part of the story of, of Burmese days as well, is that Elizabeth Lackerstein doesn't really know what you're supposed to do in the colonies, but she very quickly comes to understand that what Flory, this other character, has uh, taken her into is something that's not appropriate. And that helps to kind of school her on what she should be doing on what she, and what she should not be doing. So there is an adjustment period where you learn that behaviors that would have been okay back in Europe are seen as not okay, not appropriate in the context of the colonies. The thing is, though, if you resisted this system, if you couldn't adjust this system, or most radically, if you transgressed the boundaries themselves within the system, then generally you would not be long for the empire as, as a woman, right? You'd be sent home, particularly single white women who came to the colonies and, you know, acted out of their place and didn't follow the rules of the way things were, were going to be, were sent back to Europe. Right? The whole idea as, as a single white woman would go into the colonies was to find a husband with a nice pension 
who you could then live with for, for, for a few years and then retire back to England or, or France or the Netherlands and live out your life on these, on these pensions. But if you couldn't act the right way, then you weren't going to stay in, in the system. And then there's also this, this element that when I talk about trans, transgression of the system, in Dutch territories in particular, white women who married native men could lose their European status. They literally would be stripped of their whiteness. They got married to native men. And the grounds of this was that, quote, their cultural dispositions were no longer Dutch. And therefore, they should not have access to the status of being Dutch. So when I say the system is perpetuating, that's what I mean, that those women who play the game correctly enter the system and those who don't are essentially taken out of the system. And so in the context of these colonial Karens, if you weren't going to adopt this Karenhood, as I called it earlier, then you weren't going to be in the empire in the first place, which meant that there was a uh, critical mass of Karens amongst that white women, woman community. And just one example of this, this is an example from actually the, the British Empire. In India in the 18, early 1880s, there was a, a, a scheme put in place by the British Indian government to just kind of rationalize the judicial system in, um, in, in British India. And the, the idea was that as it stood, Indian judges, and there were a lot of Indian judges in this legal system, were not allowed to try cases involving Europeans. And this was hugely inefficient because there were more Indian judges than European judges. And therefore, European judges would have these huge backlogs of cases because every case involved in a European had to go before them. Whereas Indian judges would often have, you know, sometimes days at a time where there'd be no cases in front of them. And so the British Indian government thought, well, this is inefficient and let's, let's fix it. And they fixed it by saying any judge could hear any case. And when news got out that they were going to make this change, the white population of, of India went into near revolt. And the revolt was led by white women. And white women uh, created petitions. They created, uh, you know, kind of funding drives to support this movement. Uh, they were out front kind of speaking out against this, this idea. And the whole notion, the whole thing they feared is that if their cases came in front of Indian judges, Indian judges would only be able to see them as white women as objects of desire and would not be able to try their cases fairly. And so this entire opposition to what was, was uh, known as the Bill on Criminal Jurisdiction was kind of couched in terms of protecting white women from the desires of these Indian men. And as you, you mentioned earlier, I mean, the history of lynching in the United States, right, is almost entirely based on that same kind of, of idea, right? Yeah, with really tragic tragic effects uh, you know to legitimize the killing the wanton killing of of black people you know on that thin um pretense yeah and, and i will say in this case you know it doesn't have it's the consequences are not that tragic it doesn't lead to deaths in fact what it does is it reveals to a lot of middle class western educated indians that this is what they're up against right that that there's a racial structure in place that they believe that maybe they could subvert through their own efforts, through their own education, uh, by changing the way they think and the way they dress and, and the way they talk. And what this uh, protest against the Bill on Criminal ju Jurisdiction showed them, I think on, on one hand, it helps create this idea of, of white women as being the most racist ones, certainly, because they led this movement. But it also had, you know, you can, you can make case a positive um, outcome in that Indians realized 
that they weren't going to ever succeed in the system by playing the game that the Europeans had set up. That if they're going to succeed, if they're going to build something for themselves, they're going to have to go in a different direction. Um, and so in the context of Indian nationalism, uh, you know, this, this set of, of um, movements against the Bill on criminal, criminal Jurisdiction was a key moment in that story. So ultimately, Stoller's work allows us to see, and she's not the only one doing this, but I, you know, I think of her as kind of the, the, the progenitor of these more complex ideas about the way that race and gender worked in the colonies. What Stoller's work allows us to see then is that the situation was one in which European women were both servants to and participants in a set of racialized structures that they didn't create. And I think it's important to, to note here that ultimately, and I, I think we've said this, but I just want to highlight this again, that the power structure is created by men. It's a patriarchal power structure. It's a racialized power structure. Um, but women are finding their place and their way of operating within this system. Right? This is a pretty common thing with collaboration, right? That those who are some, sometimes subject to the oppressive forces of the power structure want to find places where they can operate within that power structure, even given their own oppression. And I think that's what's happening here and what, what Stoller is identifying. To then return to our contemporary Karens, their mix of victimhood, privilege, and a sense that they get to determine how space can legitimately be used and by whom, makes them seem to be the true inheritors of the legacy of their colonial counterparts. Before there were Karens, there were the colonial Karens after all. What they actually represent, I would say, though, is something far less anomalous and far more nefarious. Uh, they serve a particular role within a larger project, a project that Michel Foucault, and he's a guy we're going to be talking about more, I think, in the coming weeks because uh, it's overdue. But Michel Foucault has argued that all racialized states require, quote, that they defend society against itself, right? That you need people within the society willing to defend society against itself. And for white women, their role in the power structure was to serve as one of those bulwarks that could protect the society against its own people. Now, to end on a, on a, a more positive note here, and I kind of want to return to something that, that Jenny was talking about, that there's been a real gratifying element to these recent weeks and months when it comes to these, these discussions of racial justice, the protests, the activism, the falling statues and monuments, is that while there still may be cops and Karens standing up for the society, there are also far more people than ever who see significant parts of the society as no longer worth defending. And that's something that I think is real and is something that we, we can focus on if you're looking for optimism right now, is something seems to have shifted, right? Um, and maybe one of the reasons why people are sharing these Karen stories so much is because those stories do stand out so much against a, a group of people, I think, who, as, as Jenny was, was talking about, do now want to discuss issues of racial justice, do want to discuss their own and our own complicity in these systems, do want to change and do want to make things better. Um, and again, for me, that's, that's been a, a point of real optimism as I kind of watch and observe and take part in all these discussions that are going on at the moment. Well, you know, that's outstanding uh, because what you've done and so importantly, I think, is you know, given us a lens to understand uh, what uh, Robin D'Angelo and White Fragility calls these pillars of whiteness, uh, it's so easy for folks to get defensive when they see themselves as being on the same side, you know, of racial justice, because they, they uh, take personally these assumptions about what racism is. But when you draw it the way you did, 
into a global context, an imperial context. Remember, the United States is born of an imperial system, complete with a racial caste already embedded. So what we see is that in these systems, uh, that those pillars of whiteness are long since constructed. And just by being born into them, you as, say, a white woman, uh, inherit in a kind of historical way, you know, the uh, the privilege and, and pretensions uh, that come with it. You, you, you know, we're, we're sort of redefining racism now. You're not as something that you necessarily avow, you know, in a volitional way uh, outwardly, but as something you've inherited and which has then conditioned your relationship in that, that larger society, just as all those colonial women, you know, learned that they would be doing a kind of choreography of sorts, you know, a racial choreography of power and, and race. And so, yeah, Josh, I think that's a fantastic way of really drawing the perspective and the, and the discussion itself into those more fundamental uh, systemic contexts. So uh, nice going. Appreciate it. This is uh, this is a, f- a fun episode to do. We were, we scrambled a little bit to find the right way to approach this, and I think um, you know ultimately we've got some uh, some stuff to say about about this larger power structure, which is I think become a big part of what we've been doing in the last few weeks is just trying mm-hmm. to identify and describe the structures that exist uh, because ultimately it's hard to to fight back against something unless you know it when you see it. Very well said, my friend. All right, this has been episode 15, History Against the Grain. We will talk to you again next week. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another 